Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 37th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data and Government, a social mobility special supported by the Social Mobility Commission. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening at the IFG and online. Now, we've been doing Data Bytes for nearly four years now, but this is our first ever January event. So, Happy New Year. Also, a happy Burns Night to any Scots who may be in this evening. And from us Welsh, a happy St. Doinwyn's Day, the Welsh equivalent of St. Valentine, the perfect day for us to celebrate our love of better data in government. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. If you've not been to Databytes before, it's a rip-roaring roller coaster ride through the highs and lows of government data. So strap in. <laughs> I know tonight's event is going to be a belter. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live-streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDatabytes, and we are live-tweeting from at IFGEvents, so please do join in. If you're here in the building, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password Institute123, all lowercase. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb37. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand and surreptitiously use Slido to pose the more difficult questions. Why does IFG organize Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone what better data can achieve in practice and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by eight minutes of questions. This is our 37th Databytes. You can watch the previous 36 on the IFG website. So what's happened since we last met? Well, I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. I decided to take a break from watching the real-life drama of people sat around a table trying to work out who could be trusted by watching the real-life drama of people sat around a table trying to work out who could be trusted. I hope you're all still 100% faithful to Databytes. One bit of drama we lacked for the first time in a while was a change of prime minister. In fact, Rishi Sunak overtook Liz Truss's prime ministerial tenure in mid-December. He's just broken the 90-day mark. He'll overtake George Canning before the end of the month, and you can see the various dates he'll surpass 15 other prime ministers. If he gets to the 22nd of January 2025 at the top, he'll beat George Grenville, and that'll be just two days short of the latest possible date for the next general election. Now, of course, the prime minister has some more immediate problems to deal with. Everything, everywhere, all at once is not just the big favourite from yesterday's Oscar nominations, but an apt description of the metaverse of challenges that currently faces the government, from strikes to the cost of living to war in Ukraine to the crisis facing the NHS. Now, that to-do list of doom includes addressing a couple of ethical scandals. 
Sunak came to power promising to restore integrity, professionalism and accountability to government. But over the weekend, it was reported that the chairman of the BBC was involved in facilitating a loan to Boris Johnson, and chairman of the Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi, like the Prime Minister, a former Chancellor, faces an investigation over his tax affairs. I suspect Mr Sunak is not the first person to leave the Treasury, only to find themselves discombobulated by the two chairmen. Now, ethical controversies have been one mainstay of recent British politics. Another has been our ministerial resignation chart. Now, there was a second from the Sunak government a few weeks ago, Baroness Edmund Scott stepping down from DWP for personal reasons. We actually have to zoom into the chart to be able to see it, which says something about recent ministerial churn. Now, despite mounting pressure, I don't think Nadim Zahawi has resigned, but I thought I'd be ready just in case. Now, another mainstay of British politics is complaining about the complications of English local government, something some of my IFG colleagues published a report about in December. Now, I made the mistake of noting in public that one of the excellent charts in that report bore a resemblance to a certain hit computer game. So... Now, I have some serious analysis written down here, but I don't think any of you are going to listen to a single word I say. Uh, basically, one source of confusion is that there are lots of different types of local authority in England which have different sets of powers. In many places, you have two tiers of councils. In other places, unitary authorities and London boroughs. You have councils that cover both. Then you have the added confusion of nine mayoral combined authorities in places like London and the West Midlands. They come with different sets of additional powers in different shapes and sizes and cover all sorts of different boundaries, not just councils but other public sector authorities like integrated care systems or police and fire authorities as well. That all makes the patchwork of English government, well, patchy. An international outlier in its inconsistency of structures, in the powers it has and in its resulting capacity. That has implications for further devolution in England. Without the right institutions and capacity, it could be game over for further reform, which some politicians might try, in any case, to block. No pun intended. Turning to tonight's event, which is themed around social mobility and missing data. First up, joining us virtually, will be Anna Powell-Smith from the Centre for Public Data. Anna will be updating us on her missing numbers work. She spoke about that at Databytes 8 back in February 2020. Our second speaker will also be virtual. Alan Francis, OBE, Interim Chair of the Social Mobility Commission, will be talking about the SMC's recently published report on data gaps, which those of you in the room should be able to find a copy of. Our third speaker here in the room is also from the SMC. Michael Pandazis will tell us about the data gaps impacting their annual State of the Nation report. And our final speaker also here in the room is Oliver Anderson from the Department for Education on the power of administrative data to support the social mobility evidence base, specifically post-16 education and the labour market. The next scheduled data bytes is a defence special next week, 6pm on Thursday the 2nd of February. We'll then be back on the first Wednesday of the month for a bit, but we may also have a few off-cycle events for you over the next few months, so keep an eye on the IFG website and sign up to our newsletter and events emails. A huge thank you to the Social Mobility Commission for supporting tonight's event. We need sponsors to keep Databytes going, so if you would like to follow in the SMC's virtuous footsteps and sponsor a future Databytes, 
please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. We also need presenters to keep Databytes going. If you're in government and would like to present or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That's more than enough from my introduction. We will now hand over to our first presenter this evening, and that's Anna. Evening, Anna. Um, I think we're ready. Hi, Gavin. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, hello from West Gloucestershire. Um, so this talk is going to be about data gaps and how my organisation has tried to prevent and fill some data gaps and how that's gone. Um, so, yeah, as Gavin says, three long, long years ago, I spoke at Databytes about a part-time side project I was working on called Missing Numbers, which was researching data gaps in government. Uh, since then, I've got so interested in data gaps, I switched job. Uh, left my job as a programmer, set up a non-profit, works to prevent and fill data gaps. Um, and I'm going to talk about how that's gone, basically. Um, so I got interested in this because I spent the previous decade using data. And in some cases, clients would come and it'd be very easy to find the data they wanted. Uh, for example, air pollution or environmental data is often very good. In other cases, it'd be very hard. Um, and it wasn't obvious why that was. The way I defined missing numbers is an important public data set. Obviously, the word important is doing quite a lot of work in that sentence that the government does not collect. Um, so, for example, uh, government collects centrally data on complaints about hospitals and schools, but there are job centres. So if you complain about your local job centre, uh, only the local job centre knows about it. DWP doesn't collect that information centrally, which is inconsistent with other departments, uh, at least. Um, so that's a bit strange. Um, other missing data examples, um, we don't have in the UK a time use survey. So most other developed countries survey their citizens about how they spend their time. We don't do that here, which um, which means we miss out on lots of useful information. Uh, we didn't until recently have kind of reliable immigration data. Uh, lots of information about land ownership is hard to get hold of, uh, etc. Um, missing numbers um, tend to exist because they are hard to collect or expensive. Uh, they can be embarrassing, uh, or most often they're just not a policy priority. Um, policy priorities are odd things. Um, if you want to know how many cats there are near you, uh, uh, density per square kilometre, there's an official data set on that. Uh, if you want to know some of the things I just mentioned, you're going to be less lucky. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a wild out there, basically. Um, so I'll work on data gaps. Um, so I got inspired by examples of people who'd filled data gaps, uh, like the coalition of people who'd worked together to improve homelessness statistics, for example. Um, Full Fact's done amazing work on that and the ONS. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get some seed funding from the Joseph Rancher Reform Trust. Uh, and since then, I've been able to work with some amazing people uh, and have a great full-time researcher on board as well. Uh, so we have a practical mission to work with partners to improve the quality of UK public data. Um, and the way we work is try to influence policy legislation to prevent gaps forming in the first place. Um, we'll work with partners who are experts in their subject area to understand the gaps they face uh, and try and provide practical recommendations on how to fill them. 
so I'll give you an example of how we've done each of those in the past two years. Uh, so example one was last year and the government reformed the way it hands out subsidies after Brexit. Uh, so subsidies in this case means how it gives grants or loans to businesses to support things like R&D or levelling up. And it's quite a lot of money. Uh, it's a few billion a year. Uh, so say you want to build yourself a one of these, which is a quantum computer, because who wouldn't? Uh, if you're a company, then you will probably want to get some grant funding off government and the government uh, will be keen to give it to you because it's keen to support quantum computing research. Um, what the bill proposed was to remove many of the controls that were there before on subsidies in terms of approved, central approvals, but also simultaneously publish less data about the subsidies that were being awarded. So only the very largest subsidies, over half a million pounds, would be required to be published, which is a lot higher than it was before. So we kind of spotted this and thought, actually, this should be a good opportunity to produce more data, not less, to have a kind of evidence-based subsidy regime um, that can be more responsive. Uh, so what we did was essentially lots of advocacy work. Um, so we responded to the consultation, said to Bayes, look, this can be an opportunity for you to produce more data and have more evidence, not less. Um, didn't get very far with that, sadly. Uh, we worked with John Penrose, MP, who was the anti-corruption champion at the time. Um, he was great. We met the minister. We did a joint policy paper with the Centre for Policy Studies on why this data mattered. Um, we helped put a Commons amendment in uh, and eventually a Lords amendment. And the Lords amendment was eventually successful. And the government said, OK, yes, we accept that actually more data, not less, would be a good thing um, and amended its own bill. So that's an example of working on new policy legislation to say, actually, Brexit can give us opportunities to have better data. Um, and, that, and that worked. And we've done similar kinds of things on agricultural funding data and other areas too. Um, I'll now move on to uh, trying to fill a data gap. Um, so the example I'll give is gambling data. So in the UK, we've got lots of gambling firms, very profitable. Uh, they are all run on data all the way down. Um, so they know how they, they know what their customers are doing online. They know what they're spending. They know their profit margins on each customer. Uh, however, the Gambling Commission doesn't really ask them for a lot of reporting data. Uh, so in particular, it doesn't know which companies have high profit margins on particular customers. Um, so we were talking to gambling experts about this um, and kind of the sort of three, a three stage approach to this, which we've used in other areas too. So it's to understand what is the need for data, like what would it actually help people do or understand, um, and then go away and do lots of very nerdy research on, okay, well, look, what's the underlying data set, database look like? Uh, this can be via FOI or talking to analysts, um, if we can do that. Um, and then say, look, we think based on the data you're holding or the data you're not asking for, it should be possible to do a bit more. And here are some technical recommendations on what that could be. And in this case, we did some work with the APPG. Uh, we also gave evidence to the select committee saying um, they had an inquiry about the lottery, saying here's what we think the lottery should be reporting on in terms of you know, profit margins on the top 5% of customers or whatever, uh, evidence of you know, late night sprees, that sort of thing. It's all being collected. Uh, so trying to make really clear recommendations on how to fill that gap. Um, yeah, and we've done that too, and we're doing more of that. We've been working in a few different areas on that, um, and it's... Um, it's quite it's quite satisfying work actually. Um, so um, what's gone well is um, everybody's interested in data. There's a lot of keenness to use data better across government. 
Um, most things, of course, are now data in databases. Uh, no, we know people aren't using paper forms very much, so it's getting easier than it was. Uh, and the basic approach does work. So we've had you know, successful examples of doing these things. The challenges are this type of work really needs long-term engagement. It's not quick and it's very detailed. Detail is very important. Um, admin data is often you know, designed to administer schemes or spending. It's not really often about outcomes. So sometimes that can be a problem. Um, and it can be hard if people make excuses. So on subsidies, the Treasury should really know better said, you know, we can't report data because it'd be terribly expensive for public authorities to type into forms. And of course, you know, nobody's doing that these days. Um, but it can be hard to challenge that from the outside. Uh, so what we need to tackle data gaps, I'm aware that I'm up to time. Um, <laughs> um, political support is the crucial thing that we need for this. Um, politicians who understand it and get behind it makes all the difference. Uh, we need data standards across government. So the CDDO do amazing work, but it's often not mandated. So on things like subsidies, um, it's uh, you know easy to easy for it to be missed. And then I think we need something like the Bean Review, which is an independent review of economic statistics and data. We need the equivalent for social data. Um, somebody independent to say, look, here are the needs on social data, and here's where we're missing things, and some recommendations. Uh, thank you. If you want to talk data gaps, I would love to hear from you. That's my email address. Um, and I look forward to answering some questions. Thank you very much, Anna. Now, uh, Anna will appear on screen very shortly, um, so I'll be coming to you for questions. If you're watching us online, if you're not already on the Slido, please go to bit.ly slash slidodb37. Uh, but I will come to the room for the first set of questions. Uh, do remember we're on the record, um, but please do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Um, wait for the microphone to come to you, and please do keep and try Please do keep your questions short, as we will be up against the eight-minute clock. So who would like to ask the first question of Anna? Got one down here at the front. Thank you. Thanks for your presentation. Um, I thought there were really interesting examples of um, data gaps. I wondered if there were others that you wanted to highlight um, while you've got us here. Um, yes, uh, I mean, uh, we've done a lot of work on housing data. Um, so something I wrote about quite early on missing numbers was data on the private rented sector. Um, so here in the UK, we have really good data on housing sales. Every house sale is reported in price paid data. It's all on Zoopla, it's all on Rightmove. Um, there's loads of data about sales. There's very little data about rent levels or the experience of renters or things going on in the rental market it's sort of there's kind of two data sets that aren't compatible that show different things you can't do geographic changes over time from the official data um, and i think that really contributes to a lack of visibility and what's going on in the renting market and you know renting generally uh, so we've some some of the stuff we've been trying to do is around um, better registration of landlords uh, which is a thing that's sort of constantly Rooted and talked about, um, and never quite gets over the line. But um, that I think is a really interesting example that would be fixable and would have a big impact. Um, I'll take another question from the room uh, there, and we'll come to you next. 
Yeah, I'm Alex, I work in DWP. Um, I'm wondering, um, just from my experience and experience sort of looking through FOIs for various government departments, um, the excuse that's quoted for not returning data is often that it's collected, but it's collected in case notes and free text, and it's just not um, feasible to extract sort of structured information and aggregate it. Would you consider that something that is also um, sort of stopping, you know, num like making numbers um, into missing numbers? Is, is that something that you would consider a priority for you to tackle as well? Yeah, we see that a lot, um, especially in justice data, where you often see the sort of phrase manual search for court records. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, I mean, if you've got that kind of situation, you can either ask people to perhaps update their systems so it's not free text or say, um, well, look, perhaps we can do a manual search of free text field that's good enough. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, quite often the underlying data is structured. So it's just a question of updating the database to be more structured in the way it works. Um, and, you know, depending on how your database works, it ought actually to be feasible to search free text fields um, as long as you've got the right index. So, um, yeah, it, you know, often is feasible. It often is feasible to fix that, I think. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, we've got a question down here just by the door. Thanks, uh, James from uh, the Evidence Quarter. Um, so, interested in uh, gaps in the data itself. So, the data you actually were able to get, get across, were, were there any significant gaps in that data? Was it clean enough um, uh, for things like interoperability of data? So, conduct new research by putting two databases that have never been put together before. How, how did you find that? Is that possible? How far away from making it, making it possible are we? Uh, I mean, it obviously, depends on the data set you're working with, but with subsidies, one thing we were very keen to recommend was um, that if the grant was to a company, there should be a company identifier in there. Um, so that then, of course, you can join that to all the other data sets that we have about companies, uh, such as who the directors are and who the uh, people controlling the company are. And having that in there from the start is super important. Um, so often data kind of quality and joinability comes down to you know, when you set this up at the beginning, are you using the right identifiers? And that's why the CDDO's work is so important because they do the hard work of saying, actually, these are the identifiers you should use across government, you should make sure you're using them. But they don't, as I understand it, have the power to enforce that. Um, so, you know, that's why I think there should be, this stuff really ought to be compulsory for new data sets. Um, so, yeah, often tax records, you see questions about, um, do you have company shares or do you have you know, do you own land? But people aren't asked for the company identifier, they aren't asked for the title number. So then you can't join the data to those important other questions, which just makes it so much less useful. Um, so obviously there's loads of questions around quality, but I think the magic wand is identifiers. Thanks, Anna. Um, just a reminder to those of you watching us online, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB37, capital D, capital B, if you'd like to ask Anna a question. Uh, let's stay in the room for the next one. Who would like to go next? Uh, we'll go to you this time. I'll come to you next. Hi, um, I'm Claire Lally from Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology. Um, I was just wondering, what's your process for kind of finding the areas where there are gaps in the data? How do you know sort of what policy priorities or topics to look at? Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, 
so actually quite often people are coming to us now, which is nice. So we're doing some work with a health charity who have problems getting hold of workforce data um, and they they came to us. Um, a lot of it's been driven by what is the policy process that's going on. Um, otherwise, it's, uh, you know, where where have we come across uh, examples of things that are important? When I did missing numbers, a lot of people wrote to me and said, these are things that are affecting my work. Um, a lot of people wrote and said, um, uh, yeah, a significant number of people wrote and said, my child is not in school, and the fact they're not in school is not recorded anywhere, uh, which was interesting. Um, the way we try and prioritise work like that is looking at um, what is the impact of filling the gap, how technically feasible is it to fill, um, and then kind of... Um, who are the partners who want to work on it? So that's how we prioritise things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's an infinite number of areas you could work on. Um, but technical feasibility is is a big one. Um, how how tricky is this? I mean, a lot of social care data is very important, but also genuinely quite hard to make better. I think. Whereas there are other areas where actually data is collected, all you know, almost already in the form you need. It's just a question of creating it and, um, and pulling it together. Um, we're doing some interesting work at the moment on justice data, uh, where we're actually looking at signals of need in criminal justice. So people like select committees or MPs uh, or civil society organisations saying specifically, we want to know this and we can't find it out. Uh, and our brilliant researcher has been pulling those together uh, and then saying, actually, this, you know, consistently people are saying they can't get information about remand or conditional bail or out-of-court disposals or legal representation there's you know for year and year after year after year people are asking these questions and can't get them answered um so we're doing projects at the moment to look at that um in a more systematic way and, uh, and try and find some answers brilliant somebody actually online just asked us you mentioned justice data have you done any work particularly looking at data gaps here so that was perfect timing um <laughs> down here at the front which is probably the last we'll have be quick, um, Ben Hawes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'd all like you to name and shame some more, you know, your experience of what the, the worst offenders are. But actually, you know, in the spirit of New Yearish optimism, um, who's who's done really well at filling gaps? Um, Scotland. <laughs> uh, Scotland actually have a data gap strategy, which is amazing. Uh, like everything Scotland do is amazing. Um, yeah, Scotland is taking this really seriously and have a strategy. Um, in terms of data quality, I think Companies House have done amazing work um, and have some of the best sort of data out there. Um, I think ONS are starting to think about this really seriously as well, which is encouraging. So yeah, there's lots of there's lots of good work going on. Fantastic. Well, Anna, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great to end that first bit on a note of optimism. We've had that sort of general landscape of missing data. We're now going to look in more detail at uh, social mobility with our next speaker, and that's Alan, who's joining us virtually. Good evening to you, Alan. Good evening, Gavin, and thank you very much for the opportunity to come and uh, share some of our thoughts on this with you this evening. So um, I gather I've got eight minutes to try and cover this. I'm not a data expert. So I'll say that right at the beginning. Um, I'm a college principal. Um, uh, we're well versed in some of the challenges around the labour market, so we know that data analytics is a huge uh, area of future work that we encourage our students to take seriously. But um, it's only really since coming into the role of first deputy chair, now interim chair of the Social Mobility Commission, 
that I've started to um, uh, uh, get some insight really into some of the data challenges really around um, policy and and the kind of data that we need to make good policy. So it's been fascinating to hear Anna's contribution and to see uh, how how extensive some of these, these challenges are. But, but I'm particularly focused on social mobility, so I will talk very specifically about that. Our priority is to try and see how we can, uh, in, the, in the Commission, have a greater impact on policy to improve social mobility, and sometimes to recognise where social mobility is being done well. Um, we don't just want to focus on the deficits. We want to create an accurate picture. And a huge amount of our effort is based around producing our State of the Nation report, which I know Michael's going to talk about in much more detail later on. But what has struck me uh, very strongly um, has been really that we don't have much of the data that we'd like to have. We do have a lot of data, but there's areas where we just don't have what we would like to have to make good policy. So although so improving social mobility is an ambition of government um, and a wide range of factors influence social mobility, you know, ranging from talent and ability, they're clearly part of the equation, but very few can flourish without the support of families, communities, educational institutions. And then there's wider factors like the labour market, inheritance, geography, regional inequalities are a big issue for us. Uh, even individual postcodes all play their part in shaping opportunities and of course given that range of complex factors and I've only touched on a few of them there um, it can become very confusing in understanding well what should the focus be on and of, of course one of the ways of unlocking that confusion is to have the right data to let the data help us zoom in on the right areas so that we could think about where opportunity is in shortest supply that we can think about the right kinds of interventions and that we can try and ensure that we have uh, an effective uh, uh, social mobility strategy, if you like. Um, and and, and if, so that what the data does is help us have a much greater understanding of the causes of life outcomes for people, whether they're poor or they're successful, and therefore can better target policies as a consequence. It helps us particularly focus on the people who need help most um, and to understand exactly what kind of help perhaps is the most uh, um, impactful. And without data, we really cannot make progress on any of those things. What strikes us is that in other countries, there are examples where data linkages provided valuable insights and help to inform public policy. So examples we point to. In the United States, they link tax records with parents and children to show which neighbourhoods offer children the best chances to rise out of poverty. In Australia, the Treasury recently reported on intergenerational income mobility, looking at the relative chances for children based on parental income. These are things that we could do in this country, but we don't. In the Seattle metro area, uh, a further example would be that local officials are using this information to help low-income families move to equally affordable areas which offer higher rates of upward mobility. And that's something that without the data here we couldn't do. So in the area of data around social mobility, we lag behind some of our counterparts uh, when it comes to having the right kind of information. And that's why we commissioned the National Foundation for Educational Research 
to identify the current barriers to using socioeconomic data to outline um, and to help us outline an ambition to improve the kind of data that we need to inform good social mobility policy. And I think the report, I hope you have had access to it and be able to read it. I think it's a fantastically interesting report uh, and one which gives us a huge amount of food for thought. So one example from our recently published report uh, that illustrates what we're talking about um, is the fact that the current um, uh, way in which we, we currently use data doesn't give us a very clear focus on who the most disadvantaged children are. There's around about 1.6 million children uh, currently living in relative poverty who are invisible in the education statistics. We simply can't track them. These lost children don't show up in the system because they aren't eligible for free school meals. And there's no other publicly available identifier of disadvantage. So of those who have signed up for the free school meals, we know very little about the households where they live in or their parental income or occupations or educational attainment. We also know that the eligibility for free school meals changes. Uh, and with the introduction of universal credit, that's introduced a transition period, which means that some young people, some children who would have been temporarily on free school meals are now uh, eligible for them on a permanent basis, but previously would not have been. And that distinction for us between those who have been on free school meals all the way through their childhood and those who have been in and out of free school meals is quite an important one in trying to understand where disadvantage is the most acute. So these are just some examples of the kind of uh, 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 data challenges that policymakers and researchers are facing. Um, another is that the data we collect often relates mainly to individuals, but we would like to see or be able to connect the information we have on people living in the same household and to connect one generation to the next. That's fundamental to social mobility analysis. Linking data in this way would show us the impact of family circumstances on a person's socioeconomic status and outcomes and help us better understand the causes of social mobility and target our interventions, as I've said previously. We'd know, we would know the composition of households and their economic circumstances, who is living with who, and available income would help us to understand the drivers of social mobility. Obviously, households and families are absolutely critical and in themselves are quite complex. And, and uh, 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 that's a key aspect of the social mobility story, too. And to understand how that interplays with income would be very, very helpful. In terms of occupational mobility, uh, vital work in this area has principally relied on just three UK wide birth cohort studies. This is because administrative data on people's occupations has not been available and the labour force survey has only recently begun to ask questions about social mobility. So this means that calculating occupational mobility, and of course there's two major ways of defining social mobility. One is based on occupations, which is the one that sociologists tend to use. The other is income, which is what economists tend to use. But calculating occupational mobility, that's how a child's occupation relates to their parents, uh, at a local authority level, for example, is very difficult. So when we're looking at regional disparities, it's very hard to get down to the level of detail we'd like to get to. On income mobility, the situation is even worse. The Labour Force survey doesn't ask questions about parental income. So there's no official data for rigorously analysing income mobility. That's how far a child's eventual income relates to that of their parents. 
But it's not just um, not having the data. It's also the case that when data does exist, getting hold of it can be difficult. And sharing administrative data between public authorities, as Anna's been alluding to, is often a lengthy process, and often one part of government isn't aware of what data is held by another part. External researchers still face practical barriers to getting safe access to data, leaving the UK at risk of falling behind in this vital area. So other countries will have a much better understanding of their social mobility than we will of ours. Moreover, there are huge unexploited gains from linking data. Better data sharing, improving data sharing capabilities and processes would allow many more people to use the data that already exists. We're not just talking about unlocking the data for the Social Mobility Commission, but we have armies of researchers in universities all over the country uh, analysing the kind of things that we're interested in, and they share the frustrations that we uh, are describing in this report and uh, very much we feel that unlocking that data would allow a huge amount of interesting insights into the whole social mobility question. It's not all bad news. The good news is that in many areas, but not all, the government is seeking to link data sets together and make it available. The pupil-parent matched database developed by the Department for Education, which links pupil data to information about their parents, uh, such as income and child benefit, is a good start. The DfE should, however, publish the evaluation of this project with a plan to make this more widely available and link further data sets to it. Ultimately, what we would like to see is a UK-wide household data set covering every household and bringing together data on educational attainment, occupations, income, housing and wealth. Because only then can the government and researchers get a true picture of people's and critically children's circumstances. We recognise and appreciate this is a big ambition, so we've thought hard with the National Foundation for Educational Research and with those responsible in government about how to achieve it. So what, in practice, might we be looking for? We clearly need to improve data sharing and data linking in specific areas. And there's been good progress in some. Um, for example, the creation of the Inclusive Data Task Force. Now, um, wrapped into the ONS Centre for Equalities, has been helpful in taking a strategic aim at these issues. The Equality Data Programme, the publication of the National Data Strategy Mission to Transform the Use of Public Sector Data are also welcome and have played an important role in directing activity in the right areas. But what else could be done? There is more that can be done and should be done, that, uh, and identifying the specifics of this is, the, is, is the, uh, our biggest priority right now. I've mentioned the importance of the DfE coming forward with their pupil-parent match database and committing to a robust and deliverable timetable for that. Ministers should also commit to recent HMRC consultation proposals to collect occupational data, and crucially, this should be accessible and linked to the educational attainment, housing and wealth data sets, as well as to income. HMRC should also link this occupational and income information they hold between parents and children. And this could be collected by them from employers through the PAYE system and national insurance systems. If occupational data is not collected, any household data set would be lacking critical information. If this was done, it would allow policymakers to track social mobility outcomes from a wider range of social economic backgrounds in a joined up way and to better target support and resources. It would also help identify those 1.6 million lost children that we mentioned earlier who are living in relative poverty but are invisible 
in the education statistics. And it would mean that we had a proper, reliable measure of disadvantage across government. How could we incentivise this activity, which is often of little benefit to individual departments that hold um, the, the data that we want, uh, and they have to bear the cost and the risk of sharing it? HM Treasury should link departmental outcome delivery plans to specific data sharing goals outlined here and in the National Data Strategy to encourage uh, the kind of data sharing and linking that we're looking for. The ONS should increase the promotion and rollout of accreditation that supports departmental data sharing under the Digital Economy Act 2017. This should not just be with the public sector, but also with the academics and third party researchers that I've mentioned, and should be extended to cover health and social care as far as possible to enable more joined up analysis of socio-economic disadvantage in the round. The integrated data service, which is at the centre of a lot of public sector data sharing, should swiftly work towards DEA accreditation to support the linking and sharing of data by public authorities. Finally, there is a persistent issue for social mobility that needs addressing, not just around the issue of data, but policy and operational responsibility for social mobility and socio-economic disadvantage are dispersed across government and not always joined up. So there's no single specific part of government who is responsible for overseeing all of the work being undertaken to tackle social mobility and each area of government is therefore working to achieve their own specific objectives, but greater progress might be achieved if there was greater oversight and greater collective work to improve social mobility outcomes. According to PricewaterhouseCoopers' report on driving social mobility in the UK, if central accountability for cross-government social mobility was strengthened, it could mitigate the risk of unintended negative consequences from individual policy plans. As an arm's length body, the SMC does not have the power to require government to act on the recommendations it makes. Therefore, we encourage equalities ministers to assign the recommendations in this report to an appropriate central body that can take coordinated action on them. For example, the central digital and data office responsible for the national data strategy or the ONS Centre for Equalities and Inclusion. In addition to the previous recommendations, the appointed lead should also be responsible for publishing a regular audit of the non-sensitive data sets held in each department. And to help deliver on these recommendations, ministers should also give a relevant department such as the Cabinet Office or the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities overall responsibility for oversight of work across Whitehall to address social mobility. This would encourage departments to set meaningful objectives on social mobility data gaps and social mobility more generally and hold departments to account for delivery. Excellent. Alan, thank you very much. Okay. Great. Thank you. Uh, now, I'll start online this time. First of all, Emma Gordon uh, from ADR UK, a former presenter at Databytes. Evening to you, Emma. Um, says that ADR UK have done some work with data owners to link and de-identify 2011 census benefits and income data, which they've made available via the ONS Secure Research Service. Um, so she says it'd be great to talk, and I'm sure we'll be very happy to put you in touch uh, after the event as well. Um, but we've got a comment and question from Anonymous as well. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Um, they say free school meals um, data is only obtained if parents' eligibility is checked. Um, they think there seem to be more political barriers to government policy addressing the well-known markers of child poverty than data. So I suppose that there's a question there about to what extent is it the other barriers, uh, the policy barriers, rather than the, the, than the data that's the main problem? Um, there's, a, there's a whole 
range of issues, obviously, in our work and our work plan, which are around um, focusing on the, on the most impactful policies. What, so we're not saying that the data is in itself the answer to the problem, but what we are saying is that without good data and without accurate data, it's very difficult for us to really zoom in to make sure that we're targeting the most disadvantaged. If I just give you one example, um, I think it, within the last 18 months or two years, um, a report was published on um, universities' uh, definitions of disadvantage uh, and how they might inform their recruitment policies because there's just no, there is just no consistency about how it's measured and therefore who people regard as disadvantaged. Um, we're doing quite a lot of work for the State of the Nation report, which Michael will be able to talk about later, to start to be more refined in the way that we break uh, groups down into quintiles rather than binary groups to try and understand where the real disadvantage is. Because actually, when you do, when you do use the data in that way, it's quite illuminating because we tend to find that actually um, the really serious obstacles to opportunity are um, very much experienced by groups that are very much at the bottom. Um, a lot of the categories we've got just don't help us in focusing attention on the right people. So we're not suggesting at all that there aren't all kinds of policy issues that need addressing, but having the right data is going to make a huge difference uh, in terms of helping us shine the light on the things that really matter. Brilliant, thanks. Uh, let's come into the room for the next question. Uh, we've got one at the front here. Hi, Alan, thank you. Um, Jonathan Smith from Cabinet Office. So just reflecting some of the conversations I've been having with colleagues recently is how we bridge that gap between some of the traditional data sets that will show us a snapshot in time and then at the other end of the scale what can often be generationally or every five years. If there was any thoughts you might have had or recommendations that are weaved through here as to how we follow the trajectory of a household or a cohort or a geographic region, especially if we think about the journey of that mobility aspect of social mobility to track whether those policy interventions are having the desired effect for that cohort over time. Thank you for the question. I can't give you an easy answer apart from to, to say that we are in agreement with you that that's a challenge for us. Um, we're looking today at some of our progress on our State of the Nation report, and again, I think Michael will talk about this in much more detail than I can, um, about how we can try and build models that will give us that sense of trajectory over time. And of course, that is the, that's the critical thing, and it is a complex thing to measure. Um, it's not all answered by having all the right data, but, but actually improving the data would help us greatly, particularly at the household level, which is where we feel the biggest gap is currently. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. And a reminder, it's bit.ly slash slidodb37 if you want to put a question to our speakers online. Um, Anonymous uh, says, I'm one of the lost children that you referred to. I received all the grants available to low-income households to enable me to go to university. Although limited, could this data be used to understand how lost children progress at university and beyond? It's certainly a good question um, and something that we de definitely consider and have a look at. Um, I, what, what I think we focused on on this report is trying to really get the rigorous uh, 
baseline data that we need to try and unlock some of these issues with a bit more uh, a bit of a kind of more robustness really uh, it's not to say that there aren't other things that could be used but I, th I think one of the things i would say is i think that the researchers in this area having to build really complex statistical models to deal with the fact that data doesn't give them what they want and actually what we want them to do is not necessarily have to do that we want to get the right data so that they can uh, use that data more effectively um, otherwise we do end up with you know very complex models which lay people struggle to understand and therefore we struggle to draw the right kind of policy conclusions from them um, and so really the focus of this report is trying to say look what's the long-term data set that we need not just today but over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years in order for social mobility to be taken really seriously in policy terms. Thanks. Um, let's come back into the room for the next question and we've got one right at the back. Uh, hi, I'm Ollie Cliftonmore from DfE. Um, social mobility moves in decades and generations, yet our policy cycle moves in years and spending review periods. And often our interventions won't, in, in social mobility terms, won't arise for many, many years. How can we convince um, uh, people, or policymakers, when something doesn't seem to be working, but it probably might do in 10 years' time, how do we make sure we're preserving the, uh, the data and uh, policy to, get, you know, to persist through um, to get results? Thank you. Um, it's a great question. It's the hardest question. That's the most difficult one of all, all for us to deal with. I mean, the first thing we'd say is that um, what we're trying to do in the State of the Nation report is try and draw out that nuance that you've described so we've you know last year was the first time we we reported on social mobility outcomes which is the longer term uh, uh, generational uh, pattern um, but also the kind of intermediate outcomes and drivers which are the more short-term things that we think the evidence support the evidence says are connected to changes in those longer term outcomes so we've created a framework we think in the state of the nation where we can start to be more specific about that and then in our work program we've opted to focus on the areas where we think you know lots and lots of things affect people's social mobility um, but we try to refocus on the things that we think make the biggest difference so um, our focus is very much on families parenting early years and, and and schools what are the things about those that ensure good outcomes particularly for the most disadvantaged um, routes to work and entry to the labour market we're very keen to look at the range of choices and options apprenticeships not just the university routes alternative routes to higher level skills through technical education as well as academic uh, and start to be more systematic in, in kind of measuring those um, but also having that broader more robust a database about well what are the actual patterns of mobility social mobility um, which um, are often presented in very dismal terms they're actually not particularly dismal there are areas that definitely need improving but there's also areas that are very encouraging so I, I'm not sure I'm completely answering your question but one of the things we want to do is build a systematic approach which we'd like to see uh, embedded in policy and adopted by politicians of all parties as something they say look at least if we've got good quality data and we've got some clear measures they may wish to argue over which policies particularly they want to um, uh, implement uh, what we would like to say is yes but whatever policies are put in place 
they should be evaluated well and related back to this bank of evidence which we're presenting in the state of the nation report and our work pro program uh, in that sense we hope to shift from a position where we've got quite a lot of noise taking place but no clear sense of how a strategy hangs together over a period of time and we'd hope that this kind of work would help us to be more rigorous in that regard excellent well alan thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you thank you very much for the opportunity and enjoy the evening thank you now you've heard him uh, trailed a few times already uh, our next speaker is michael okay um thanks very much gavin and um thanks to everyone attending uh okay so is my it'll, it'll presentation going to appear any good now well, that's great. Well, what I'd like to do is um, talk about what we do in our annual report and perhaps illustrate a couple of the points that Alan's made, uh, illustrate them in action, as it were. So, uh, well, you know, what do we do uh, in SMC in our annual report? Well, we measure social mobility, as you'd expect. What that means is that for the same individual, we need to see their starting point and their ending point. So that's, you know, what did their parents do for a living and what does the individual do for, an, uh, for a living? Or what did the parents earn and what does the individual earn? Um, and, you know, this could also be housing, education, many different things. It, it, people can go up or down and these different outcomes can go in different directions. So our fundamental challenge is getting the same individual at two points, which can often be quite, quite widely spaced apart. Thinking about types of measures, um, absolute and relative, well, if we wanted to improve absolute mobility, it's a bit like adding extra upward escalators so more people can travel upwards socially, whether that's uh, traveling upwards to get a professional job or upwards in income, um, so they're earning more than their parents did. But even if we did that, you can see that your starting position still makes a difference. And if you started at the back of the queue, as it were, uh, perhaps your parents had a low income, it's much more difficult for you to get to a high income. Now, if you want to improve that, we're talking about improving relative mobility, perhaps by giving a helping hand to the people who started off at the back, or I don't think there'd be votes for this, but holding back the people at the front. And that would improve relative mobility. So some typical measures just to illustrate, but okay, what percentage of people are in a different occupational class from their parents? Uh, so you're doing a professional job, your parents had a working class job, you would count in this percentage, or the other way around, your parents were professional, you're working class in your occupation, you would also count. That's the total occupational mobility rate. Uh, on a relative uh, measure, um, What's the difference in likelihood? So how much more likely is a person from one background to get a professional job than a person from another background? And it's that more likely part of it that makes it relative. We're comparing the chances of two different people. Or we might perhaps be looking at regression models to give us the influence of one thing uh, or the association of one thing with the other. OK. Right, so uh, putting all that together, we get this, which is the, our framework, our measurement framework, our index. And at the top, we've got mobility outcomes. So these are people who are perhaps in their 40s, around 50 years old, and we look backwards to their childhood and compare the two things, right? So what job are they doing or what are they earning when they're 50 years old compared with what were their parents earning or what 
you know, what job were their parents doing? But that's a very, very long time span. So the difference between the start and the end point is 40 years. It's backwards looking. And that's why we also look at intermediate outcomes. So people who are a little bit younger, perhaps in their teens, just entering the labor market, compared with what their parents were doing. And we also want to look at the future, so drivers of social mobility, which are not outcomes, but they're the sort of background conditions or enablers of social mobility. Things like how good is the school system, how favorable is the labor market, uh, and that's, that helps promote or it might stand in the way of social mobility. So let's have a look at some example results, and here's where I'll be able to illustrate a couple of things that Alan was talking about. Uh, on mobility outcomes, well, here we've got, on the left, absolute income mobility, so that's the percentage of people who are earning more than their parents at a similar age, okay? And the UK is the bold line there, uh, so you can see it was pretty good around about the mid-70s, nearly 80% of people earning more than their parents, but it's declined since then. I mean, it's still better than a few other countries, uh, the US and Canada, for example, are doing a lot worse on this. On the right, we've got relative income mobility. Now, this is slightly different. This is the number of generations that you'd expect a low-income family to have to wait before their descendants make it to an average income. Okay, so in the UK, that's actually five generations, which to me just feels like quite a long time. So if you're on a low income, you'd expect your family to have to wait five generations before you typically have descendants on an average income. And that's a bit worse than the OECD average of four and a half generations there. So, you know, where do we run into problems? Well, firstly, um, this is something that Alan mentioned. We don't link tax records across generations, so parents and children. Um, so we can't use that for the analysis. The backup option of using the labor force survey doesn't work either because the labor force survey doesn't ask about your parents' income. And if it did, honestly, I think the recall would probably be quite poor quality. I mean, would you know what your parents earned when you were 14 or whatever? So there really is no official source to do this analysis. So we get stuck and analysts, you know, academics have to use fancy statistics to try and infer what it would be. And then we get bogged down in arguments about whether the fancy statistics are right and all of that kind of thing. So not ideal. Okay. Um, looking at an example of an intermediate outcome. So now we're looking at teenagers. Um, now, here we've got um, DFE statistics on uh, attainment at 11 and attainment at 16. This is what they call the, um, uh, the disadvantage gap index. So it's the gap between the performance of children who are on free school meals and children who are not. So with the children on free school meals being the, the so-called disadvantaged group. And you can see that that gap narrowed a little bit until the pandemic and then since the pandemic, it's widened out. Um, but again, we have a problem. So, you know, we've got two groups here. It's just a binary measure. Everyone who's not on free school meals is considered non-disadvantaged. Well, you can see that's a very heterogeneous group. I mean, the, the non-free school meals group in London and the Southeast is probably very, very different in composition from the non-disadvantaged group in the Northeast, let's say. So we're not really comparing like with like, particularly if we look across regions. Not only that, it's a devolved matter. So the, the criteria for being on free school meals will be different across the four nations. Educational qualifications will be different across the four nations. So we, we're just very, very difficult to compare across the UK for all those reasons. And, and finally, I, I want to conclude by saying a little bit about geographical comparison and intersectional analysis in general. 
what we would really love to be able to do is to look at a local authority level or perhaps at a lower level, lower tier local authorities, maybe even lower than that, and see where there are differences um, because we may find that the underlying sociological processes differ across regions. And we'd love to be able to break down by individual protected characteristics, so things like ethnicity, gender, and so on. But to do that, we really start to run out of room if we're using surveys. Even the labor force survey with 100,000 plus respondents, we, we start to run into very small cell sizes if we do these breakdowns. So ultimately, we need administrative data. And we need that administrative data to be linked across generations and, and to bring all kinds of information about the parents in so we can really see where mobility is working and for whom. Uh, okay, so with that, I can conclude and take questions. Uh, a reminder to those online, it's bit.ly slash slidodb37. Um, we'll go into the room first. We've got a question down here. Hi, um, Purdy Fraser from National Numeracy and University of Edinburgh. Um, just wondering, do you work with other non-governmental data sets? I mean, I, for example, at National Numeracy, we have the National Numeracy Index where we've combined experience, amazing data, with our own uh, numeracy data to create an index of numeracy skills across the UK. At Edinburgh, we've developed a... Um, uh, again, with um, bank data, we're using open finance data, we've developed a... A, um, data set to track all of particular financial institutions, um, private clients, uh, so retail clients, expenditure and income grouped into five groups. So don't worry, it's not all, it's probably some people's data in this room. Um, but, you know, and we've been feeding into number 10 through the last three years of COVID to, so that they can um, understand in real time what the policy implications are um, for um, uh, sorry, on, on expenditure of individuals. Sure, okay, yeah, th thanks for the question. Um, I, we should probably have a conversation uh, after the session about the data sets that you use. The answer is yes, we're open to using non-governmental data sets. Where we tend to run into a problem is this um, linking across generations. So uh, in administrative data, we can link across generations, for example, using free school meal status of children because that's telling us about socioeconomic status of parents. The labor force survey gives us, using recall, gives us what jobs the parents were doing. But very often, third party data sets, there's just no way of doing that because you can't track the same individual over time. So that's the problem we tend to run into on social mobility analysis, but very happy to take that offline and talk about it. Excellent, I feel like we're back to the early days of data bytes where we're brokering data sharing agreements yeah. from the stage. Um, who would like to ask the next question? Um, down here again. Uh, thank you very much, uh, first of all. Uh, my name is Maria, uh, and I'm from Palantir Technologies. Um, my question was, are you doing any sort of causality to see whether those number, why do you have those numbers, or what are the um, factors, perhaps, that influence those numbers? And then I think the follow-up question is, if you're also looking at how other, what other countries do yeah. to have, you know, perhaps a lower... Um, a lower generational uh, sure. effect on 
Yeah. Mobility. I mean, these are, these are sort of the golden questions, if you like. Um, for a causal design, we would need to apply much more extensive statistical controls than are available to us now. So again, even with the labor force survey, 100,000 people, once you start applying, you know, very, very extensive, large numbers of statistical controls, we run into small cell sizes. So what we tended to do, it, you know, the, the, what we published in our annual report is all correlations uh, and getting to a causal design becomes incredibly difficult. Now, if we could unlock administrative data, perhaps that question then changes. And on the question of international comparisons, it's very, very difficult to compare because data is not collected in a standardized way across different countries. So it sort of becomes very controversial. And when you see differences between different countries, is that because they're just collecting data in different ways? Like some of the comparisons I showed earlier are kind of subject to those criticisms. Great. Thanks. And um, we've got a question from Anonymous online. Very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Thinking about other factors that affect life outcomes that are linked to this, we know that deprivation increases the risk of adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Are there any plans to include how this impacts social mobility? Uh, okay, again, we would absolutely love to do that, but the only thing we've got is free school meals. That's the only thing that's open to us uh, at, at the moment. And of course, that hides so many other things because let, Take an example. Somebody could have uh, uh, parents that are on a relatively low income and qualify for free school meals, but the parents have a very high educational level. And it may be that the educational level of the parent is a more important influence on the child's educational outcomes than is the income of the parents. So defining disadvantage and deprivation is quite tricky in itself, and we're just not really in a, in a great position data-wise to, to, to be able to do that at the moment. Thanks. Uh, next question from the room, uh, back row. Um, Ollie Cliftonmore. Um, uh, in your work, have you looked at the uh, the, the role that wealth plays in inequalities? Because a, a lot of social mobility stuff does on income in inequality and in income intergenerational mobility. But clearly, we've had an asset boom and a large degree of wealth inequality, and that's partly driving income equality. I wonder whether you'd yeah. had a look at that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, it, again, yep, yeah, very important. Uh, the problem is that the data on wealth tends to be of a much lower quality uh, than data on income. And I mean, frankly speaking, that's uh, often because wealthy people are very good at hiding the fact that they're wealthy. Um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, income data is collected uh, administratively uh, and um, it's more comprehensive. But you're right, it's, it is very important. We're looking at using the Wealth and Assets Survey to see if we can get at wealth mobility and see what conclusions we can draw from that. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, let's take another question from inside the room. Go on, I'm sure there are more. We've got another one in the back row and I'll come to you next. Uh, Matt Kerlog, um, Freelance Data Scientist. Um, this is sort of devil's advocate question in a sense of, we, we know what the underlying policy failures are that cause social mobility, a sort of a lack of intergenerational mobility that's not as good as we might want, and we know and sort of why we might perform worse than other countries. To what extent does actually doing any more data, getting it more granular, et cetera, actually really fundamentally help us in solutions, is it not just because this focus on data is because basically we currently have an administration that doesn't actually want to implement policies that would act proactively change this and have done things that have sure. actively harmed it, like getting rid of Shoresight, et cetera? 
Okay, well, I, I mean, I won't comment on the sort of premise of your question of, the, of what the uh, current administration would or wouldn't like to do, but um, do, uh, I suppose, you know, would, uh, would more data help? Well, I mean, in, in my opinion, yes, because first of all, we don't know what we don't know. Um, I think, secondly, um, from the early analysis that we've done, I think there is some evidence that there are slightly different processes operating in different parts of the country. So that sort of plays into, well, you know, I don't know if I should still call it leveling up, but you know, that, that type of discussion. And would we want different policy interventions in London from the type where we would want in, let's say, the Northeast? Uh, probably you would, because London, for example, has quite high levels of youth unemployment, but also quite high levels of young people doing higher professional jobs. So you've sort of got extremes in London that you don't have you know, elsewhere. We, we may also find you know, that um, uh, there's association with ethnic background or other things that we maybe never even thought of. So I would strongly advocate for having better data because I, I just don't think we know what we're going to turn up and I think we might be surprised. Thanks. And then we've got another question there. Hi, Malika from the Home Office. Um, just wondering, do you think that adding social class as a protected characteristic of the Equalities Act would have a positive impact on kind of mandated data collection on these issues and sort of monitoring of social mobility? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it probably would. Um, now, that's not to say that it's the, the right thing to do because there's all kind, you know, there's administrative burden and all, all the rest of it. But I think it probably would have a positive impact uh, just because um, officials would have to go through that loop of considering um, socioeconomic background status when new policies are being made. So I think we should definitely consider it at least because I think there's the potential for a positive impact. Yeah. I'm going to sneak in a very quick final question from one Anna Powell-Smith, uh, who says, very interesting, thanks. Mm. Commercial genealogy firms like Ancestry have mm. ready-linked data on generations and occupation. Would you consider asking them for some CSR data sharing? Uh, we would certainly consider asking, yeah. Um, and I, d I don't want to overrun because I've sort of got the, got the clock in, in the, my eye there, but I think there is uh, a, an academic researcher who, did, who, who found that uh, people who have surnames that come from the Norman Conquest, so the, the conquerors, you know, still on average have higher incomes than everybody else, which is amazing when you think of it. So yeah, we're de you know, definitely interested in looking, looking at that and we should probably connect afterwards. Brilliant. Well, Michael, thank you very much indeed. And our final speaker this evening is Oliver. Great. Thanks, Gavin. Um, so I'm Oliver Anderson from the Department for Education, an analyst at the Department for, for Education. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, some, uh, well, various different things with, with administrative data. Uh, uh, and particularly about post-16 education, um, labour market activities and, and outcomes, some analysis um, that I've done. Um, so, I mean, the, I'm going to focus a bit more on the sort of positive aspects of administrative data. Uh, and um, Because there's been sort of a lot of talk about um, what's missing. Um, and I agree with a lot of everything, that, every, everything that's been said this evening. Uh, but there's also uh, still a lot of potential and a lot of power with what we've got, and particularly some of the, the recent developments. Um, administrative data um, sort of linking is happening too slow, but some has happened, and it offers a lot of sort of potential opportunities. And I'll hopefully convince you of some of the power of, of that. <clears throat> so, um, I, I mean, I've only got eight minutes, so I'm not going to talk about. Uh, but the objectives are that 
I want to sort of sh talk about the longitudinal education outcomes, the LEO data set, which is something that I've done quite a lot of work on, uh, and uh, talk about some of the sort of potential and power of this, um, of, of this, uh, uh, of this data set. So, um, the, um, the LEO, the, the, the LEO data set is um, Department for Education uh, data, pretty much anything that's in the education, that we've got on education data, that, is, um, that can be matched to Department for Work and Pensions out of work benefits data, uh, and HMRC uh, tax, uh, I should have done this on the, the other way around actually, but I'll, I'll go backwards and forwards. So this is, um, this is what's in, what, I, what is in my, my data set. So uh, the school census uh, has information on background characteristics, ethnicity, special educational needs status, free school meals eligibility, which has been talked about quite a lot, uh, uh, income uh, idaki, which is a measure of uh, deprivation of a neighborhood, gender, location, first language. Um, we've got information on key stage four results, GCSE results, uh, information on what people do in post-16 education. HESA data includes data for people who went to higher levels of education, university. Uh, ILR information includes people who did further, further education and vocational education. Uh, and key stage uh, five is um, basically people who went on to A-levels and equivalents. Um, which can be matched to the um, famous LEO data that I've talked about, which includes uh, data from earnings from HMRC and uh, self-assessment earnings and DWP out-of-work benefits data. Now, this is administrative records, so it's pretty much everybody. It's pretty much everybody that went to school uh, in England. So we can track people who started uh, at school through the education system and into the labour market. So um, this is pretty good and it's pretty powerful. Uh, we could do a lot more with it, but um, so going back to the sort of strengths and limitations at the, at the top, uh, as I said, big statistical power, numbers, uh, and we can explore a lot of issues. It's really good at telling us what is happening, giving us some really good, reliable evidence and robust numbers on what is, is happening. Um, as we've has been talked about earlier, so it doesn't include household information, doesn't include parental income, uh, it doesn't include some of the richer information that we've got in surveys on motivations, well-being, uh, 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 parental aspirations. Um, we have to, um, as sort of uh, Ollie talked about before, we have to go back in time long enough uh, to, to, and the system's often been reformed by the time that we, that we get there. Uh, so it's great at explaining what, but not necessarily uh, why. Um, so I've done some analysis, which we've, 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 uh, we've published, which I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the differences in post-16 education and labour market um, pathways uh, by socioeconomic status. Now this can be done uh, via, this can also be, there are also splits on uh, ethnicity, by, by ethnicity, by special educational need, uh, uh, but you can read it on here, gender, first language, region, school type. Um, there are two things that I'm going to show you. One is I'm going to show you people's activities. So I call it main activities, where I assign people uh, a main activity over, over time. Uh, and also people's uh, uh, sort of uh, earnings, objectories, uh, earnings trajectories. So I've used free school meals eligibility uh, as a proxy for uh, lower socioeconomic status. This has been talked about quite a lot. 
Um, I'd argue that free school meal status is a pretty good proxy for people who are from a lower socioeconomic status. Now, it's true that people do move in and out of uh, free school meals, and there is a, 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 what we call an FSM ever, which is a longer period of time, uh, which is, we, 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 you know, there are some differences within F, 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 FSM, but I'd argue that it's sort of, sort of a, you know, it's a pretty good proxy for lower socioeconomic status. Although I would, you know, I do take the point that the non-FSM eligible group would be, would be pretty sort of heterogeneous. Uh, so those who are FSM eligible to be from lower income families claiming certain benefit types. Um, so let's have a little look. Here was where I mapped people's uh, uh, post-16 education and labour market uh, pathways uh, over time. I've not got time to, to go through um, everything, but the first thing to point out is, so FSM eligible kids, you know, lower socioeconomic status on the left, uh, non-FSM on the right. You can see some of the differences in the blue uh, on the left and, 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 the, and the red, which is the proportion of people that are, their main activity is in education. And also the gray is, 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 is higher education. So you can see that those who are, uh, are not FSM eligible are much more likely to be doing key stage five, A-levels and equivalents, that's the blue, much more likely to be going to, to, to university. Um, and this, uh, so we can see this here with some stats. Uh, a, quarter, um, uh, a third of those who were non-FSM go on to get a, um, um, a degree versus just 16% of those who were non-FSM. And of the non-graduates, much, you know, much less of the non-graduates go on to get a level three. And this translates into, uh, into uh, differences in labor market outcomes. The yellow is employment. The sort of azure blue is claiming out of, out of work benefits. So we've got really big differences in labor market outcomes. Uh, you can see that uh, those who are uh, not FSM eligible are much more likely to be um, in employment and much less likely to be claiming uh, out of work uh, benefits. Uh, and we, for those who are in employment, we see what I call a double whammy effect. So if you're FSM eligible, you're less likely to be getting a job. And if you do get a job, you earn on average around five grand less, 15 years after completing uh, GCSEs. So, and that, you can see, that seems to, there seems to be a pattern sort of, sort of emerging um, there. So I wanted to quickly show you um, uh, uh, an, an interactive uh, tool, or dash, what we call a dashboard in the Department for Education, which uh, shows some of this um, information. So th again, this is published. Uh, um, and you can actually go in uh, to, to, um, and you can pick out some of this information. So before I was showing you the main activities, uh, there are lots of different breakdowns here. Um, we, uh, I've been showing you FSM eligibility, and people are able to go in there, pull off some numbers, even download the data themselves. Um, earnings trajectories as well. We're interested in FSM eligibility. So, you know, this is, this is, this is fairly basic uh, descriptive statistical analysis, but what I think it's quite a powerful tool to be able to show, you know, what, what we can do with some of the administrative data. Um, and some, a couple of people have said to me, yeah, but why did you do this? Because we already know this. And I said, well, you know, if you're able, if the minister asks you a question and you're able to say, well, uh, the difference in earnings 15 years after GCSEs between uh, disadvantaged groups and non-disadvantaged groups 
is five grand, here's, what we, here's 3.6 billion people that we did this analysis on, isn't that better than saying, you know, this is something that we thought we already, uh, we already, uh, already knew. Um, um, so, these, as I mentioned, uh, the, these findings are descriptive, there's clearly a lot more going on. Uh, and there's a lot more that what, what can be done with the um, lot more that what, what can be done with the with, with the data. Um, I should mention that I'm also doing some work with the uh, Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, uh, an ADR UK, on trying to uh, get the uh, the Leo data uh, uh, more accessible to external academics. It is in the public domain, and people can access this this data and do their uh, their their own analysis uh, on it. So there's lots of potential. So I wanted to finish with something a little bit more, uh, more positive. Um, I agree with a lot of the, the comments that were made earlier that a lot more could be done with administrative data. We could collect a lot more and we could link a lot more. But I actually think that there's still uh, a lot more that can be done to mine the, the current data that we have. Thank you very much. Your final reminder, if you're online, it's, it's bit.ly slash slidodb37. Um, and apologies to those who asked some brilliant questions last time around and we didn't get time for. We will pass those on to the speakers, rest assured. Um, let's come to the room for the first question again. Who would like to get us started? Question down here. Um, Ailsa Weems, Cabinet Office. I work on social mobility. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you came to the figure, there's a £5,000 gap between the, the earners. I was wondering, was that because of lower aspirations, lower expectations, be it at school, etc.? What is the reason for that? Because theoretically, if someone's gone to university who's from a lower, a, a lower socioeconomic background, someone's gone from higher, theoretically, they should have the same path. So what is it? Is that... Um, Judgmental or what? Yeah, so um, part of that difference will be, well, it's lots of different factors, basically. So part of the difference will be explained by educa education. So we saw from Michael's presentation that there are big differences uh, in edu education outcomes at compulsory education. And I showed that there are differences in uh, sort of post-16 um, education outcomes. Even within what I showed you, there are differences by subject choice, institution, those from lower socioeconomic status are, are, are more likely to go to lower quality institutions. They undermatch, they choose poorer, lower status in, more lower status universities than they could have gone to. When they get there, they're more likely to drop out, they're less likely to get a first or a two one. But even at the very end of it, if somebody, does, somebody from a lower socioeconomic status uh, does exactly the same course as somebody uh, and gets the same results as somebody from a higher socioeconomic status, they'll earn less money. Uh, why is that the case? I mean, um, basically, um, the uh, I mean, uh, Sam uh, Friedman and, and Daniel Orison have done a lot of a lot of analysis on this. But basically, uh, the if you're a middle class white privately school educated male uh, who you know goes to is used to going on holiday to the south of France, 
uh, speaks with a neutral, you know, sort of posh accent, uh, as be, goes on regular skiing holidays, knows how to hold a knife and fork in a restaurant, you will fit in perfect to the top professions. Uh, you know, you will be confident and things. The further you may move away from that, the more difficult it is. So even if somebody's really brilliant, if they've got a strong regional accent, they've never been on a skiing holiday, uh, you know, they're, they're from a single parent family, it's much harder to fit into these type of organisations. It's a bit of a long-winded answer, but that, there's a lot of factors sort of explaining, uh, explaining that. And that's all based on, on evidence. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go to an online question next, which is uh, from Anonymous, whether it's the same one or a different one, who knows? Um, how has this data been used to influence policy to date? And do you have any examples of who is using it? Um, yeah, well, we're using it within the uh, um, Department for, 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 for Education. Um, um, Externally, um, I'm, you know, it's 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 out there. Uh, it's been it's also been used by um, uh, department for 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 working for um, for work and pensions as well. Um, one of the subsets of the analysis that that, um, that we actually published was on uh, children in social care, uh, and um, it's sort of an example of how it was used. So some some colleagues in, Depart in department for work and work and pensions use. Um, Department for Work and Pensions and DFE got together and modelled some of the differences and said if we were able to get children that were in social care the same outcomes as people who are not in social care, uh, uh, then it would save the exchequer, you know, X uh, uh, million pounds. So that's one of the examples that uh, where it's been used. Great. Uh, let's take the next one from the room. Uh, hello, Simon Briscoe. Um, Nervous to ask this as a ski-loving, South of France-loving, white, middle-aged bloke. But my question is about access to this data. And essentially, if you're not an academic or you're not a government department, it seems to me that DFE and with this LEO database is sort of following that ONS lead of, of restricting private researchers or companies or anyone else to get access to it. So notwithstanding those charts you showed, why can't you open up anonymised access to individual records to a wider group? Um, good question. Uh, I mean, this, I think, I mean, this is not my area of expertise, uh, but I guess I should try to sort of defend uh, government position as I am a, a civil servant. But, um, I, you know, when these data sharing agreements go into place, these linking data sets, a lot of basis, a lot of work goes into them. There's a lot of legal frameworks. There's an anti-sort of uh, uh, linking lobby uh, who are really interested in, you know, because what we're doing is we're taking people and we're taking their personal data, their names, their date of births, their national insurance numbers, etc., and we're matching them to different data sets. So we might, you know, this, when we're matching the HMRC DWP and DFE data together, we're taking individual information and we're matching them, matching them together. So I guess the theory is that if we're making that available, uh, you know, this is quite potentially quite sensitive data. It's got, we've got things on it, on it, on, although individuals can't be, uh, I, it's, it's, it's difficult to identify in, in individuals, that's always a potential danger there. So, you know, the ONS have this uh, secure research service, which you have to be an ONS accredited researcher. Now, you can, as far as I'm aware, you can access that as a, as a, 
as a you know Joe Bloggs from the public or, or John Smith from a from a company, but you have to go through so from, through some cha training and vetting processes because there is that danger that if you're looking at small numbers, then people could be identified. So it's just about sort of de-risking that element, really. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, this is from Anonymous. In 2013, the DFE showed that white males FSM were the lowest performers at GCSE and are the group least likely to attend university. Do we have more recent data? And how do we help this group who are usually masked in data that doesn't consider socioeconomic background? Um, yeah, so we do have uh, uh, more data. Um, I'm actually going to flip it around a little bit because what, one of the things that we, uh, that we found was that um, whilst uh, white, uh, the white working class or white disadvantaged uh, individuals, particularly white disadvantaged males, had the worst uh, education outcomes, they still comparatively do okay in the labour market compared with their, their, their sort of peers. Um, we've done some analysis and you can even see it from, from, from playing around with this interactive tool that some of, the, uh, some of the minority ethnic groups actually do much better in education, but struggle much more uh, in, the, in the labor market. So um, uh, whilst, I would, whilst I think it's definitely worthwhile that you know, we shouldn't forget about this white disadvantaged group, uh, and we should aim to improve their education outcomes, there's also, um, there's also a sort of uh, another area that we might want to sort of fo focus policy on. Great, thanks. 37 seconds, quick final question, quick final answer, who wants to ask it? There. Uh, Darren Department for Leveling Up. Uh, I was going to ask about the, the why. So is there work going on in the department or in government to understand the why in this data, or is it more focused on looking at the kind of policy implications of what this data shows going forward? Um, yeah, so I mean, we, we've already done some, some sort of follow-up analysis to this where we've, where, where we've uh, done some sort of statistical modeling uh, and we've looked at explaining some of, the, some of these differences. So that 5,000 that you talked about or that uh, sort of 20, uh, you know, the 22 percentage difference points in um, employment that we saw, we've done some, for the analyst decomposition analysis, but for, for everybody else, we're able to explain which factors uh, are within that. So we're able to, we know that some of it is down to ethnicity, a lot of it is down to, um, uh, 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 is down to uh, education, uh, sort of uh, compulsory education, choices in education, but even when there's always some residual factor, factor, factor left over, and that does, some of that does come down potentially to, um, to the sort of, where we might go next with the uh, administrative data in there are some, you know, trying to get at some of those, what we call unobservables, some of these factors around parental aspirations, well-being, uh, employer discrimination, uh, and that's where we, we want to be sort of looking to try and link more uh, data sets, be it survey data or other sort of administrative data to try and explain it and to explain everything really. Oliver, thank you very much indeed.
I will keep the parish notices incredibly short. Um, first of all, video and audio of this event will be published on the IFG website, hopefully within 24 hours. But if you follow the Slido link, you'll be able to watch the whole thing back as live uh, as soon as you want to. And please do share it with lots of others. There was lots of interesting discussion and insight tonight. Um, if you like this, then I suspect you might like Databytes next Thursday. Uh, Thursday, the 2nd of February, it's a defence special. Do join us at 6pm online or here in the building. Um, we've also got the launch of uh, the latest Whitehall Monitor um, next Tuesday. That's the IFG's data-informed view of government with lots of lovely charts. Uh, so do come along on Tuesday. Tuesday for that. Uh, on February the 8th, um, which is a Wednesday, we are discussing our uh, report on data sharing during the pandemic and the lessons government should learn. We've published a number of um, short write roundtable write-ups with various case studies already, so do look at the IFG website for that. We've heard lots about data sharing this evening, lots of similar themes coming through. There are also events on levelling up and um, an in conversation with Sir Patrick Valance um, coming up over the next few weeks as well, so do book those on the IFG website. All that remains uh, for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our audience, here in the building and online, some brilliant questions tonight as well. Um, to the Social Mobility Commission for making tonight's event possible and giving us a really interesting theme to dig into. And finally, do please join me in thanking our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.